Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We're in the 17th chapter of Luke. If you have your Bible with you, let's make our way there. We completed chapter 16 in our verse-by-verse study last Sunday, and let's move on now to chapter 17. Over the next couple of Sundays, I want us to look together at some marks of a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus. You remember that in the time that Jesus walked this earth, he was surrounded by those who seemed to be interested in what he had to say. The crowds certainly were impressed by his miraculous powers to heal. But then, as is the case now, there were relatively few who proved themselves to be genuine disciples. That is, those who entered by the small gate and traveled the narrow way all the way to heaven. At times, Jesus addressed his teaching to the masses that were surrounding him. At other times, he addressed his teaching to his uh, favorite subject, the Pharisees. And then at other times, he addressed himself simply to his true disciples. Chapter 17 is one of those times. Let's read, please, the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of his little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me and eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Here in these 10 verses, we find at least three marks of a genuine, true disciple. They are fear, forgiveness, and faithfulness. Let's begin with fear. Verse one says, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. Jesus never sugarcoated the truth. He made it clear from the beginning that following him was a difficult proposition. Being a true Christian requires a person to count the cost and take up his cross daily, follow the Lord. And Paul taught that the Christian life is an excruciating endurance race. It is a fight every day on one's life and it doesn't end to the day we die or the Lord Jesus returns. Now here in verse one, Jesus declares the inevitability of temptation along life's race course. Uh, What it says in the Greek is that it is impossible that stumbling blocks will not come. That is, rest assured, you are going to have to avoid stumbling blocks in this life. So what is a stumbling block? Well, the phrase finds its origin in hunting. Meat was scarce commodity in those days. And one way that people got protein was by trapping birds and other small animals. 
they would set a trap and uh, they would set it off by a stone or a stick that would be bumped by the animal that was drawn into the trap with bait. The Greek word for that trap is scandalon. It's where we get the English word scandal. The animal was enticed or seduced into the trap and it led to its demise. Jesus is saying that if we are not careful, we will be enticed into traps of sin that will ultimately lead to our ruin. The book of Proverbs is chock full of warnings to all of us about not being seduced to sin, specifically in the area of sexual sin. Hear what the, the Proverbs says in chapter 7, verse 21, speaking of young men avoiding the temptation of sexual immorality. Speaking of the adulteress, he says, with her many persuasions she entices him. With her flattering lips she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. Now hear this, as a bird hastens to the snare, to the trap, to the scandalon, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Jesus is indicating that through the course of our life, we are going to be enticed into sin. There are traps laid along the way for those who would seek to do us harm, and we must avoid those traps. Now, when I say that one of the marks of a true disciple is fear, here is what I mean. Well, before I tell you what I mean, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean that Christians are to be fearful and cowardly when it comes to addressing the sinful condition of our culture. The Apostle Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy and said to him in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He says, Timothy, you preach the truth in season and out of season. That is whether people appreciate it or, or they don't. So that's not the kind of fear I'm speaking of. When I, when I say we need to have a healthy fear as believers, I'm speaking of two things. Number one, we need to have a healthy fear of our own capacity and ability to sin. Even though we are born again, even though we have the indwelling presence of the Spirit, we believers are capable of every sin in the book. And if you don't believe that, read the story of King David, who fell into heinous sin adultery, which led to murder. And you might think, well, that must have been when David was young and immature in the faith. No, this happened past the midpoint of his life. And if David is capable of falling, so are we. And one of the reasons I'm convinced David fell is that because he had reached certain goals in his life, he became complacent. The scripture introduces that story of David's adultery saying that he was on his bed at the time of year where kings went out to war. He had stopped doing what got him where he was. He became complacent. And so don't take your eyes off the ball, believer. Keep your head on a swivel. Be wary of the temptations that are all around you. This is what Paul seems to be saying in Ephesians chapter five when he says, see that you walk circumspectly. To circumscribe something means to all go all the way around in a circle, 360 degrees. So when I say keep your head on a swivel, that's what I mean. Be watching all the time for dangers. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine. That is, don't waste your life wherein is excess, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Not only do we have the responsibility to be wary of the temptations around us, to have a healthy fear of our own ability and capacity to sin, but it is our duty 
to help and encourage other believers that they too may avoid those same enticements to sin. We do that when we gather together, don't we? When we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we remind one another there is accountability here. Your brothers and sisters hold you accountable to those commitments you've made to the Lord. But not only should we fear our own capacity and capability to sin, we also must have a healthy fear of our leading someone else to sin. Look what he says next, woe to him through whom these stumbling blocks comes. This is a warning, really a curse pronounced on those who create stumbling blocks or hindrances for believers on their walk with Christ. He doesn't stop there. Look in verse two, he says, it would be better for him, that is the person who entices a believer to sin, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. How seriously does the Lord take someone who would entice another to sin? Well, he says it's better that he would die a horrible death. A millstone was uh, used to pulverize grain. It was uh, sometimes several thousand pounds in weight. It was used to grind grain into meal and flour. And this is a very graphic image. Think about it, tying something that weighs 2,000 pounds to a person and then pushing them into deep water. Hard to think of a more horrific death. And that's the point Jesus is making. Don't be guilty of this. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now I've heard people make the application of uh, child abuse here. That if someone were to abuse a, a child or an infant, this is what the Lord is saying. That certainly is one application. We know that the Lord has a special place of protection for little ones and the infirmed. But I don't think that's the immediate application here. In the context, a little one is a Christian one of Christ's little sheep. But, but these little ones are Christ's followers, particularly young and immature Christians who are sometimes easy prey for false teachers. I think he's specifically speaking to the Pharisees, but generally to anyone who would lead a Christian away from the truth. Here's why I say, I think he's speaking to the Pharisees. Listen to Matthew 23, 13. He says to the Pharisees, but woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor you allow those who are entering to go in. It's not enough for the Pharisees that they aren't receiving Christ as the Messiah. They are holding back and hindering those who are trying to enter the gates of the kingdom by the small gate. And uh, he pronounces one of his harshest curses and woes against those people. I think that is confirmed and affirmed by the Apostle Paul in his epistles. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Paul also pronounces a woe or a curse on those who lead people astray from the true gospel. We know that Satan is a deceiver, isn't he? He is a liar and a usurper. He takes what is good and pure and seeks to destroy it and pollute it. Within the first century, two major heresies had emerged in the first century church. One was the Judaizers. These were people who were saying, before you can become a Christian, you have to become Jewish. That is, you have to keep all these ceremonial laws and customs, and then perhaps you can become a Christian. And that was refuted by the Council of Jerusalem, and yet that heresy persisted. And then you had the Gnostics who claimed some special or higher knowledge that only they 
had access to, and they also were rebuked in the scriptures. And, and by the way, th there has been heresy and heresy for the last 2000 years. Satan is not that creative. He's just consistent. He just repackages these same heresies over and over in every generation, in every epoch of history. And so in every generation, we have to be aware and on guard that we don't fall into this trap. True disciples, friends, have a healthy fear, first of their own capability and capacity to sin, and a healthy fear of leading others astray. Because there will certainly be opportunities to, be, to do both in this life. And so what does he say? Be on your guard. Don't become complacent in your Christian walk. Be wary. Keep your head on a swivel. Now, there's a second mark of a true disciple found here in chapter 17. Not only should we have a healthy fear, but we should be ready to forgive. Forgiveness is the second mark. He says in verse 2, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So not only, I take from this, is it inevitable that temptations will come, it is quite possible that believers will succumb to some of those temptations. Though with the Spirit's help, we don't have to. Would you agree? Because there was a time in our lives before we were saved that we couldn't do anything but sin. That's who we are. But now that we've been rescued and redeemed and brought into the kingdom, we're born again, we do not have to sin, and yet we know that we do. All Christians do. One of the errors I think of uh, the Wesley brothers towards the end of their life, John and Charles, is they started teaching a doctrine called Christian perfectionism. They believed that they and others could reach a point of sanctification in their life where they no longer sinned. Well, I never met the Wesley brothers, but I'll tell you, I've never met a person like that. In fact, the Apostle Paul said he was not like that. Towards the end of his life in Romans 7, he, he made this statement, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, Paul was in a battle and some days he didn't win. He sinned. But when he did, he confessed it. He repented and he kept making progress. And that's what we should do. What I often say about the Apostle Paul is he was not perfect, but he sure wanted to be. But unfortunately, what I see in my own life and, and in the lives of other believers sometimes is we battle certain sins to a certain point in life and we just decide to make peace. We give up the fight. We say, well, I've made progress in all these other areas. I've checked off these other sinful habits. I'm going to hold on to this little one just for me. And I'm just going to no longer fight it. Don't do that. Continue to fight until the day you die. That's what Paul did. So what happens when a brother is enticed, a sister is enticed into sin? What, what do we do when a fellow believer sins? Well, he says here, rebuke him. That is to show him his sin. I think that means to love another Christian enough not to let them make shipwreck of their life through sin. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Now, no one likes to be rebuked, least of all me. No one likes to have their shortcomings pointed out. 
That's why we're to do it in a certain way. Matthew 8, chapter 18, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, go to him in private and show him his sin. If he won't repent, take a witness with you. If he still won't repent, take it to the church. There is a process by which we rebuke a brother or sister in sin. And, and I don't believe here he is talking about a one-time slip up or an unguarded moment in a life that is otherwise noted for its progress and sanctification. God didn't call me to be an FBI agent trying to sniff out every sin in the life of the members of this church. What he seems to be talking about here is a believer that has fallen into one of these traps that's been laid out in the course of our life. They've been enticed and seduced into a serious and a habitual and life-threatening sin. That is someone for whom we are fearful is making a shipwreck of the faith. The Apostle Paul gives us some detail of how to apply Christ's commandment in Galatians chapter 6. Listen to what he says. He's speaking to Christians. He says, brethren, fellow Christians, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if Anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Now, he's speaking here of church discipline. Now, here's the thing about church discipline is, is I read the history of the church writ large. It, it comes in phases. It comes in cycles. There will be cycles in church history where church discipline is, is practiced, and there will be other cycles, namely today, when it's rare. And, and I think the reason is, is that the pendulum seems to swing to extremes when it comes to church discipline. In certain ages of history, it has swung to legalism. It has swung to vindictiveness, where we're seeking to punish and to ferret out any sin or anyone who doesn't believe exactly like we do. And, and because of that, the next generation doesn't want to make that error, and so they swing to the extreme of doing nothing, letting all sin go unchecked and, and unrebuked. And both of those, I believe, are sinful attitudes. He says that we're to rebuke a believer in sin, how? With gentleness. We should never take any joy in pointing out the shortcomings of another believer. And of course, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Make sure that beam is out of your own eye before you point out. But he does say, so that you may clearly see to help your brother. So we should help our brother. Paul says it this way, bear one another's burdens. I take that to be the burden of sin and temptation. If you have a believing friend who is struggling with a certain temptation, he's about to make shipwreck of his faith, not only point his sin out to him, but help him out of it. Spend time with him in counsel and accountability, and we owe that to one another in the context of the local church. He says when we do that, we're just fulfilling the law of Christ, what Christ wants us to do. And he says be careful, be humble, because if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I, I take that to be that at the point that we think we're bulletproof, be careful. We're about to fall into sin ourselves. The, the goal of all church discipline, the goal of all church discipline must be restoration, not punishment. 
It is not our job to punish a sinning believer. I said last week that God created hell to punish rebellion and sin. That's right. But that is God's job. That's not ours. Discipline is meant to restore. But before there can be restoration, there must be repentance. I have come to believe over the years that before there can be true forgiveness, forgiveness must be sought by the sinning brother. That is, forgiveness is a transaction that comes after confession and repentance. Now, that does not mean if a brother or sister has sinned against us or, or, or the church in some way that we get to harbor bitterness and resentment and ill will towards that unrepentant person. We must pray for their repentance. And most importantly, we must stand ready to grant forgiveness when it is sought, even when it seems less than genuine. Well, how do I know that? Because of what verse four says, if he sins against you seven times a day. So he, he comes to you in the morning and asks forgiveness of what he did yesterday and does it six more times throughout the day. Are we still to grant forgiveness the seventh time? Yes. Jesus told Peter if he sins 70 times seven. That, that is, there's an infinite amount of times that we must forgive the sinning brother. Why is that? I think it's very simple reason why we owe forgiveness to one another like that, because that is how the Father forgives us. The scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to keep on forgiving is what the Bible says. Not just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That is every time we come to him, the Lord is faithful when we are faithless. And speaking of faithfulness, this is the third marker I see in this text of a true and genuine believer. There is fear of our own ability and capacity to sin. There's a fear of leading another brother or sister astray. But then there's also faithfulness. In, in response to Christ's incredible high standard of behavior and forgiveness, it is a high standard, would you agree? Jesus says you have to constantly, 24 hours a day, be on the outlook for temptation and sin. He says, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, you are required to forgive him. That is a high standard. One that is incredibly difficult to, to live up to. And by the way, the disciples understood that. And they knew that they were not fit for that task. And so what do they do? They asked for help, which is what we should do. Verse five, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> Jesus, if we're going to live like that, we need some help. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, you're exactly right. You do need, you do need my help. You can't live like this in your own strength, avoiding traps of temptation, helping others out of their traps and forgiving every time it's called for. You can't live like that in your own strength. You need my help that comes as a gift. And do you know what we call something that comes as a gift from God? We call that grace. And grace is accessed by faith. Paul said salvation is by grace through faith, but not only are we saved by grace, we live by grace. He uses a 
seemingly strange analogy here. He says, if, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be transplanted in the sea, and it would be. Mulberry trees were known in that day for their difficulty to transplant. Their root system would spread out and wrap themselves around other tree roots and plants, and it, it was very difficult to move a mulberry tree. That's the point. Jesus' point is that with faith, you can do what you can't do in your own strength. You can't avoid all the pitfalls of sin in this life in your own strength. You don't have the ability in your own strength to forgive people seven times a day, but with faith, which accesses God's grace, you can. That's what Jesus said to his disciples when he talked about it's uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the heaven. They said, who then can be saved? Do you remember what Jesus said? He says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You can live like this with the Lord's help. But it doesn't have to be huge or perfect faith. And that's why he says if you have faith like a mustard seed, mustard seed is described in another passage of the New Testament as the smallest of the seeds. It doesn't have to be large or strong. Your faith simply must be real and genuine. And he illustrates this truth with a story. Beginning in verse 7. He says, which of you, now remember he's speaking to his disciples. Which of you having a slave, plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now this story is, uh, it kind of chafes us, those of us who grew up in America, because we love our freedom, don't we? And the idea of being a slave to someone is repulsive to us. But in Jesus' day, there were probably more slaves at times than there were freedmen. This is the way that the economy of Rome functioned. They had these slaves, which the Greek word is doulos. And the scripture describes us as slaves of Christ. The Apostle Paul, when he described his own ministry, said, think of me in two ways, as a steward of the mysteries of Christ, a manager who looks after property belonging to another, and a slave. And that's how all Christians are to view themselves in their service in the Lord's kingdom. We are slaves who were purchased on the slave market of sin by the blood of Jesus. The scripture calls that concept redemption. We have been redeemed and we have been set free, but not set free to serve ourselves, not set free to sin. We have been set free to serve the Lord Jesus. So Jesus says, I've called you to some difficult tasks. I've called you to live a life of reflection and introspection and thoughtfulness and avoidance of sin. I've called you to a life of forgiveness when a brother sins against you. And he says, don't expect congratulations when you do that. 
And I take it he's saying this within earshot of the Pharisees because remember how are the Pharisees described? They were meticulous keepers of the law, but they did it to be noticed of men. When they gave money, they did it to be noticed by others. And Jesus says, when you give your alms, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. That is, that ought to be between you and the Lord. You're doing it as a slave renders service to his master. So he says, in effect, when you avoid temptation or when you help a brother out of sin, don't spend a lot of time patting yourself on the back. Get right back in the race and keep your head down and keep it on a swivel because the race is not yet over. When I was a very young boy, my father was a pastor in a very rural area of Mississippi. We had a deacon in our church who was kind and generous and he often helped others. But when anyone in the church pointed out some good deed that he'd done to congratulate him or make a deal, big deal about him publicly, he always paraphrased this verse. And you know what he said? He would simply say four words, it was my duty. It was my duty. He viewed himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus and he knew this is what the Lord wanted him to do. He wasn't expecting congratulations in this life. Matt, you, you picked out a good song this morning, a lot of them. When we all get to heaven. That's the closest Baptists get to dancing is when we sing when we all get to heaven. <laughs> and I love singing and talking about heaven. But what Jesus is reminding us here is that we're in an endurance race. It's excruciatingly difficult and painful and fraught with dangers, toils, and snares. And even as we sing about heaven, he's reminding us there is a heaven, but this isn't it. We're not there yet. Here's what he says in that story about the servant. Servant's been working out in the field. He doesn't come in and immediately sit down to eat. He, he has to meet the needs of the master. And when all the needs of the master are met, what does he do afterwards? He eats and drinks. And I think he's talking about our life here. There, there is going to be a time of relaxation and fellowship and joy around the Lord's table. Would you agree? At the marriage supper of the Lamb, but only after our work is done. Only after our race is finished and, and the battle is over. I've gotten in the habit recently of reading a chapter of Proverbs to my children around the breakfast table. And Brother Mark, I got that from you. And I know you've been doing that for years, reading a chapter of Proverbs every day. And so this week, the, the first day was the 17th, and we read Proverbs 17. We read the proverb that corresponds with the day on the calendar. And this is what Proverbs 17.2 says, a faithful slave's needs were met by the master, we know that, that a master would meet the basic needs, food, clothing, and shelter of a slave. But listen to what Proverbs 17, 2 says. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. And we think of a slave as, as just property. But even in the ancient world, a trustworthy slave, when he got to the end of his life, was treated as a son. He got a portion of the inheritance 
just like the sons did. And even if the sons were unfaithful, he got their portion. Well, the scripture says in the New Testament, dear friends, we are joint heirs with Jesus. Not only are we his slaves that he's purchased from the slave market of sin, he calls us brothers. Not only that, he calls us friends. And he says, when this life is over, when our race is won, when the battle is over, we are going to have our share in that heavenly inheritance. Amen? But it's not yet. Now there's a race to one to run. There's a battle to fight. And the temptation is when we get close to the finish line or we perceive we're close to it, it is to slide the transmission into neutral and try to coast on in with the momentum that we built up in, in previous years. There's warnings throughout the Bible not to do that. Remember what happened to David when he put his life in neutral? He fell into sin and horrible sin. And you probably know individuals in your life who've done the same. Don't be one of those people. Three marks of a true and genuine disciple. He's got a healthy fear. Healthy fear of his own capacity and ability to sin and a healthy fear of leading others into sin. He's a person who is willing and ready to forgive even seven times a day. And here is a person who is faithful to the end. He obeys the commandments of his Lord. I pray that uh, we would see those marks in all of our lives in days ahead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, as we study this 17th chapter of the next few, years, few weeks, Lord, I, I pray you would use it to encourage us where that is needed. Pray you'd also use it to rebuke us if that's called for. Father, we are but your servants and your slaves. When we obey you, it is our duty to do so. We don't expect commendation and award in this life. But for, Father, we are living for the next life. And Paul tells us in, in Colossians to look to heaven, keep our affections there where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So Father, even as uh, we look ahead to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, Lord, help us to be wary of our own capacity to sin, even if we've been Christians for decades. Help us, Father, never to entice or seduce another believer to sin. Just the opposite, when we come across a fellow Christian who has fallen into one of these enticements, help us to love them enough to point out that they're in a trap and then reach down to help them up, all the while looking out for ourselves that we're not prideful, lest we too fall in. So Father, I pray you to help each individual in our church make application of this text in their own life. I'm not the Spirit, but each one of us who is a Christian has the Spirit within us. Point out the ways, Father, where we need to grow and change and improve. Forgive us, Lord, of where we have fallen short. Use us, Father, to hold one another accountable and encourage one another to finish the race we've started. And when that happens, we'll be very careful to give you all the glory, the praise and honor. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.